0: Hello and welcome to The Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alex I know the rules. When a man takes a stand on something, he's a maverick. When a woman takes a stand, she's hysterical. These are the words ascribed to my guest by playwright Tim Walker in his play Bloody Difficult Women. She's a prominent businesswoman and a passionate philanthropist who has campaigned for investment in pension reform, political transparency and scrutiny, modern-day slavery, social justice, the charity sector. She was described by Bloomberg as an establishment wrecking ball. Welcome to the bunker, Gina Miller.
1: <laughs> Hello. It always still makes me smile, establishment wrecking ball, all by myself. It one made woman. me smile
0: as well as I was reading it, so. Gina, let's start with that case, okay, because we can scarcely avoid it. You got a lot of hate for that. You even had someone offering a sort of five grand bounty to the first person to accidentally run over this bloody troublesome first-generation immigrant, that was the quote, There were plenty of people involved in the battle to limit the Brexit fallout, to keep the process due, as it were. Why do you think you became such a lightning rod? Why did all the trolls just zero in
1: on you? It was nothing I was expecting. And I would say possibly I was naive (laughs) about what happened because I was so focused on the reason for bringing actually both cases the article 50 case and the prorogation case was about defending parliament mm. and using the law to ensure that a prime minister or prime ministers didn't put themselves above the law and because everyone was talking about parliamentary sovereignty that was my naivety i thought people would be so supportive mm. of me taking this case but the way it was spun or pivoted by politicians and by media made me this target and I never envisaged that I was going to be the lead, if you like, figure of it, yeah. because at the time that I reapproached the courts, I was actually one of four cases. And when Lord Leveson decided to make me the lead claimant, and I suddenly looked as though it was me uh. doing all this by myself, that's when the abuse started. And I was shocked at the sentiments that still seemed to be sitting in so much of the public mind about as a woman of color it wasn't my place to bring such a case mm. i couldn't possibly be smart enough it must be very rich white men with money pulling my strings yes someone uh, somebody else you know mind. you know i must be you know it's just not possible or the fact that even from some quarters that i was embarrassing women and ethnic minorities who had made so many advances in our society somehow my ungratefulness was going to rub off on them. Mm. So the abuse came from so many different quarters. But I didn't just pop up from nowhere, which lots of people think that I did. I mean, I've been a campaigner for nearly 30 years. So I often say it took me 30 years to pop up from nowhere. So I was used to personal attacks and abuse from my work trying to clear up the ripoffs in the city from trying to expose a lot of the dubious practices in the charity sector from trying to talk about modern day slavery and domestic violence which
0: are the early iterations of true and fair yes. right which will come yes, to Yes yeah about.
1: which were which were all about you know I've been driven by things I see that need fixing rather Mm. than just highlighting the problem because there's so many campaigners who are brilliant at highlighting the problems that are surrounding us, whatever the contemporary backdrop is, but it's the next step. It's the finding the solutions. Mm. And what I've discovered over my years of campaigning is that that's when people really feel threatened. They're fine when you're talking about it because then they can jump on the bandwagon and look good too. The rhetoric can actually reflect well on them. But the minute you start talking about a solution and taking an action, you threaten them. And that's mm. when the ugliness is really comes to the fore.
0: You mentioned that a lot of the abuse centered around the fact you're a woman of color. I know it's impossible to salami slice this, <laughs> but you must have an instinct as to which of those two elements it was that really rubbed people up the wrong way. More than the other,
1: I'd say it's probably 52, 40, <laughs> <laughs> <So I> think this <laughs> fifty two being from an ethnic minority mm. and the forty eight being a woman yeah and and it's the quite other close the other thing I got
0: a sense of, was that there was a third unforgivable sin somewhere in there. Not only were you a woman of color, but you were also quite posh. You yes. were quite articulate.
1: Yes, yeah, so, so it, it, that was the one you that... You were
0: appetite right? Well,
1: it's this idea that there are so many myths that go around society, and mm. we still have these unconscious biases and myths. And they've grown up and they're now embedded in society, is the idea. I just can't be bright enough. That was the thing. Mm. You know, that was the one that really struck me, that it must be that it wasn't my money. It couldn't have been my money. It had to be my husband's money or somebody <laughs> else's money or some, you know, I, I, you know, the the name that often pops up is, you know, the George Soros. I wish he'd given me a penny. <laughs> <laughs> it would have been so much easier. So many uh, of so, us. So many of <laughs> us. Are, yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, so that was the thing that seemed to mystify people. Hmm. How could I have the brain. Okay, I could have the heart to want to do good and try and help and to have, you know, a desire to achieve something, but it just can't be bright enough. Mm. And that's actually something I've come across in the city as well. It's the old patting on the shoulder, you know, the, the little woman, mm. and she can't possibly be bright enough to take on these issues. I'll explain it to you later, type syndrome, which is, you know, the most condescending thing you can do.
0: You don't compute.
1: No, I don't. And I... I've tended to develop a way of dealing with the abuse over the years of campaigning. And one of the ones I've, I've really solid and focus on is that if someone's abusing and tearing me apart, not what I'm saying, mm. I've probably won. <laughs> so I'm already I'm already beating them. So, you know, the intellectual unpleasant dishonesty.
0: nonetheless. Yes, though. it's
1: unpleasant. But the intellectual dishonesty is something that actually plays to my strengths.
0: Yeah. You also got hate for your book. Right. Which, I, which I've got right here. There was an attempt, quite literally, to deplatform you, to cancel mm. you, to a petition against the book being published <laughs> from the very group of people who bleat about cancel culture. Today.
1: I know. It's quite extraordinary. And then it was the whole thing, because I never intended on writing a book, a bit like I never intended becoming a politician, which I'm sure we'll get onto. But when I was going around the country, and I've spent a lot of time over the last few years, actually last couple of decades, talking to young people and really making sure I have time to go into schools and universities and sixth form colleges. And I started picking up about 2015, 2016, a real sense of hopelessness and fear. Mm. I mean, genuine fear about the future. So the book was actually for them. Mm. It wasn't for me or anybody else. It was me talking about failure talking about, because quite often people see people on a platform on a television screen and they think it was easy to get there, or how can I get there? They're almost out of reach. So what I wanted to talk about was the failures that can then make you a success and mm-hmm. what it is you learn about yourself and how you build from picking yourself from up from the dirt. So the book was for them, but I was, yes, they've tried to de-platform it, but also I then had something else which you may not be aware of but in chapter 15 in the book I talk about being a survivor of domestic violence. Yes. And I had lawyers trying to get me to take the chapter out mm. and say that uh, the things I was saying about what men in high places do and I mean I never named anybody in it and I was very careful the way I wrote it. But no they didn't want me to write that either. It was it's strange where the attacks come from.
0: Sounds incredibly Painful, it's certainly not the background that people looking at you today would ascribe, typically, right? And I guess that's another reason you just don't compute (laughs) for people. You know, the fact that you've had to struggle properly, struggle that you, you know, you've had personal issues that you've had to fight.
1: It's interesting. One of the right-wing papers, when they sort of said, well, we don't understand you. Your life makes no sense. Your life is more like fiction than fact. <laughs> and we don't believe you. And I said, well, actually, quite a lot of people's lives are more like fiction yeah. than fact. That you never know what somebody's story is, what's behind their persona, or where they are and the face they present. And I want to be completely honest about that because I think it helps other people. We do live in a world where we we celebrate success but we tend to shy away from failure. And that's about the one certain, apart from taxes, is that you are going to fail. You're going to fail at some time, somewhere, so you might as well learn to deal with it.
0: So you're taking taxes and death and adding failure. (laughs) I'm
1: adding failure to it. Cheers
0: for that, (laughs) thanks. Is there a sense in which confrontation energizes you? I pick that up a little bit from you, that you like battling against things. Do you miss it a little bit?
1: I don't miss it I think because I in in my life every day I have an eldest daughter who's got special needs there's always a battle to be mm, fought mm. if you like if you put it that way but what energizes me is when I know that the platform I'm on is achieving something that is the most energizing thing to know that you can actually do something meaningful to not change the world just for you or for your life or your family but for those around you that is the best adrenaline you could possibly mm, have mm.
0: I read Rise and I find it incredibly endearing how you idolize your father because it's not just in the way a loving child idolizes a parent. I idolize my mother, but also it's quite specifically about his job as a lawyer and the sort of cases he was doing and coming back home and talking to you about them every day. Is that the start, you think, of believing in the law as a shield for democracy, in doing rather than just talking?
1: Oh, absolutely. I think I was so fortunate to grow up at his knees that he spoke to me. I think he saw something. That's, I think, the first thing I'm grateful to him for more than anything, is he saw something in me from a very early age. And he gave me the confidence to believe in myself. Whatever I was going to do, he said, Gina you'll be great at it because you're going to do it for the right reasons. He actually told me that from a very young age. And when that's, you know, your father's telling you that, who better? He started the art of storytelling for me. And I now do it with my children. And when I go to schools, and as I said, when I talk to people, storytelling is so important. And he spoke about the story of the law, not about words or acts that sat in a book, but about people he talked about politics, about passion. He spoke about poverty, justice, about making people's lives different through the law, about it being, as you said, a shield. So his storytelling, to me, of the law of justice, of democracy, was about protecting people and keeping them safe.
0: Mm. It's it's the ability to believe in these things is a sort of superpower, isn't it, that that your parents can give you genuinely?
1: Well, I think that's what he developed in me. And the fact that I also, once a month, we would get shipments from the U.S. of Marvel comic books. I was also (laughs) reading them thinking I could be a superhero when some people in the city for my campaigning after the global financial crisis to call out a lot of the dubious behaviors that contributed to that. Mm. And unfortunately, it's still there today people in the city called started calling me the black widow spider that was a nickname they thought it was humorous to give me wrong on so many levels and all i could think is black widow from marvel yes Yes, that's me (laughs) they didn't know that their nickname actually was fueling me in a different way
0: So last year, you decided to launch True and Fair as a party. What few people know is that the True and Fair brand, if I can call it that, ghastly term though it is, has been around for a long time as a foundation, as a campaigning organization. Why did you make the jump into politics? What was it that finally pushed you?
1: Well, I was always, I've always pushed back. I have been approached, you know, to take over a particular party, to get involved. You know, over the years, I have been approached and I've always felt... I was better being a campaigner in the background, or doing what I do, and 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 talking to people and bringing people together, focusing on the solutions. But then last summer, I sat on holiday and read the bills that were going through Parliament, mm. and the combination of reading the Nationality of Borders Bill, the Elections Bill, the Police and Courts Bill, the Judicial Review Bill, yeah. the all these bills that were They're going through Parliament. Quite a
0: quartet. Those four. They, right? they
1: were, but there were nine actually in total that. A light bulb went off in my head, and it wasn't one that was a light positive one. It was one flashing red, Mm. saying, What they're doing is they're changing our entire constitution and our entire way of life, not by stealth, but by statute. They were closing down our voices on the street, in the courts, in the ballot box. They are changing our fundamental principles of our democracy. And the only way you can combat that is in the House. Because, you know, broken Britain, broken democracies come from broken politics. Yeah. And the only way I realized you can fix it is going the whole hog, yeah, if you like, yeah, yeah. and jumping into the political arena. And again, remembering and reflecting on my father, because the reason I ended up in the UK is because my father had come to the same conclusion in our dictatorship. And he wasn't the leader, but he was instrumental in starting a political party to try and unite the divisions in our country. We had huge race wars going on, huge economic downturns and and, and poverty growing at a terrible rate. And they knew they needed a party that was focused on, which is where I've got this from my father, a party focused on right and wrong, not right and left. That is what he told me as a little child. And I am reheating my father's words now and sentiment, because I think that's where we are here.
0: Nevertheless, it's important for people to know what your politics are, of I course. guess. And I, and I understand you dislike the label right or left. Mm-hmm. So let's explore it this different way. Right? Did you consider channeling your political goals through an existing party. Absolutely. And which ones came closest and ultimately what was the deal breaker?
1: The deal breaker for me is that the the reason why our politics is not working is because the system is failing. Mm. The whole machinery of government is not fit for purpose. We have systemic failures everywhere and we're seeing it daily in the headlines. There's no accountability. There's no real rules and regulations. The good chap theory mm is no longer fit for purpose. And the main parties will not go as far as we believe, I believe, that the system needs to be rebooted. Mm. They'll take little bits and they'll tinker, but fundamentally they think, well, some of them do, and others think that they benefit from the system. And it is an unfair, broken system. So what I am focusing on is how do we fix the system, the machinery, so that it throws out a better culture better politics, attracts better people, and makes it much more resilient and sustainable for the long term. Because COVID did something very interesting. It actually unlocked in the general public an illumination of how weak the system is. Because I've been banging this drum since 98, (laughs) I have to say, you know, I'm... Nobody really wanted to talk about constitutional reform, electoral reform. You know, they tinkered, but nobody really in the public I'm talking about, really. These were sort of, oh, no, the system works. OK, it goes wrong. We, we have an election. It's fine. I don't care who's in power. We cannot have governments or politicians that are unaccountable. Right. And so that's my my start point.
0: So I noticed you didn't answer the question, which was the party that you most closely or seriously considered might be a, a, a decent... Well,
1: thing. I was approached to take over the Lib Dems. Yeah. And then I was also, I worked very closely with the 2015 Labour Party. I actually, my husband and I drafted the pension and investment reform bits of the manifesto. So yeah. I have actually worked closely with both parties, mm. but neither will go to the lengths. I mean, Lib Dems, obviously electoral reform is on the agenda. It, it is one of their core beliefs. It is one of our core beliefs. But when it comes to the constitutional, the truth laws that need to go in there, the contracts of employment for MPs, they just won't go far enough. Mm. So
0: is it fair to describe you as a moderate progressive?
1: I think probably a radical progressive because <laughs> I because I, there are some because I think, you know, whilst we have to deal with the short-term immediate problems we're facing, the macro problems that are coming down the mm-hmm. line are so much bigger.
0: Electoral reform is a key objective. Mm-hmm. Do you favor a particular system? electoral system or do you favor a particular method for arriving at a choice as it were so because there's a menu of choices there are there? There, there is a, a royal menu commission yes. a people's assembly I,
1: I I favor citizens assembly because right. I think it has to be about the people we have to we have to close the gap the trust gap is so big between people and politics at the moment mm. between voters and politicians that people have to be brought closer and I think a citizens assembly especially with the young people that I go around talking to and I do look at the data I, I'm, I can't help my other hat being an investment, Mm -hmm. a working investment field, I look at data, I analyze at all angles, a sort of prismatic view of everything. It is the fairest thing to do is to actually have a citizen's assembly whilst whilst I have my own view.
0: And the Ireland experience shows that it yields extraordinarily mature and practical results.
1: I was so impressed. So the chapters and what happened exactly. I've looked at that model. I've looked at other countries, but I think the Irish most recent model shows how pragmatic it can be
0: so there are a couple of tensions mm-hmm. there okay because you think the system is isn't working but you're essentially bidding to become part of the system you think first past the post is a bad system but it's the system we yes, currently have and and so there's a risk you fragment the progressive vote even further how do you how do you uh, answer those sort of tensions?
1: The first thing I look at is, what's the unintended consequences of anything I've ever done? Mm. And looking, if you look at the seats, we've, we've announced nine candidates. The first was to make sure that all the seats we were looking at would not be in Labour's top 300 targets, and for the Lib Dems, not in their top 50, which is being generous to both okay. of them. all right. Which that's, is being very generous to both of yeah, them. Yeah, that's interesting. Then we looked at the composite of the electorate because there are seats where the highest percentage that's rising is the disenfranchised, won't vote, won't turn out. And some places it's as high as 30%. Mm, mm. So those who will not vote will not walk over from conservatives to any other party or from any party who so just will not vote. I mean, we don't have a democracy if 30-odd percent of the country decide or vote in public decide not to it's turn out. It's useless. Yeah. It, it, you know, we, don't, we need to excite those people and give them an alternative. And we then looked for the small C conservatives who say this is not their party. This government is not their party. Yeah. So we specifically identified what I'm calling sort of blue corridors where we do not split the Labour or Lib Dem because they don't realistically, and they need to be realistic about this, they do not have a chance in those seats. Mm. And we can be part of the anti-Tory landslide, if you like, because I think we do have a landslide, and. The other thing that is really important, and we've looked at, and modelling in all of this, the data, as I say, is very important, is that whatever the polls say, if you dig down, there is a high possibility of a hung parliament. Right. If that happens, one or two seats Can can make a massive difference if what we're banging on about every single day is to make sure there's electoral reform, our two red lines, electoral reform and putting in constitutional checks and balances for MPs. Mm. If we just got those two things, it would change the entire fairness of the system.
0: So is there a sense in which you're hoping to become, I mean this in in no disrespect, the farage of that side of things to make enough of an impact to scare mainstream parties into conceding on a few key policies, basically.
1: Absolutely. And I can tell you already that because we have shared our data and our thoughts and a lot of the work we're doing, that some of the parties have already started to say some of the things we're saying. And, you know, so we don't necessarily have to win. It would be great if we could get a couple of seats in Parliament because now that gives us a different platform. You know, we're inside the camp, as it were. But to be able to highlight these issues, because as I said, it's about solutions you know, we will publish a white paper on closing loopholes and how you deal with tax evasion and how do you deal with fraud that's, you know, 41% of all crime. How do you actually deal with uh, constitutional reform? We'll do the white paper and the law, what it looks like. Others can take it or we'll run with it.
0: Right, right. Okay. So what do you think, first year? Are you about where you expected? Are you a little bit disappointed? Are you ahead of
1: where you expected? I'm... So disappointed with the media response, because the media response has been, and actually, in all fairness, I'd say this is also for Lib Dems. You hardly see them. They're not given as much airtime. Mm -hmm. The idea, and this is what I've been told by mainstream media, because they gave, you mentioned Mr. Farage, because they gave him so much airtime, they won't give a small party airtime. They're sort of making up for past mistakes, and that's not democratic. Even someone like Reform UK, you can have, you know, I I am unemotional about when it comes to what is right and wrong. You know, they're sitting on 9% of the vote. And they're not getting airtime. You could you can argue that you shouldn't give them airtime, but they are actually representing people in our population. Yeah. So, you know, the the mainstream media is not being as reflective of the public mood and that's not fair in politics, but also other things that have happened that which I find in the experience have been totally undemocratic, is even trying to find a bank account, trying to find insurance for events, is that you're told, well, we can't give it to you because you're a right. political party. I didn't know that that was the case. And that is wrong. Mm. People should be... In able, economics, I mean, we it, call it, that barriers uh, yeah, to entry, entry. Of course, right? there are massive barriers to entry. But the, the reception on the ground when we go around the country has been overwhelming and very surprising. I don't tend to go and talk to people who agree with me. I tend to spend my time going to see people who don't agree with me. Right. So we've specifically gone around the country to quite High voting Brexit areas to, you know, and, and I want to say, as down I and was saying, people. I
0: get this sense from you that confrontation does charge your battery. But,
1: but it's not. That I, was, I don't mean it in a negative way. Being you know. able to talk to people and convert, you know, <laughs> convert two or three, four people. It's a right, buzz. It's it, it, it. But it's important because then they become actually the greatest advocates. I'll tell you so. Yes, I I, it, I actually did a, a documentary for the BBC where I met one of my trolls. It was rather disconcerting because his name was Alan, which is the same name as my husband. But this chap was a part of a Facebook group who were discussing ways of killing me. And I thought it would be a few hundred or whatever it is. It turned out it was about something apparently like 4,000. Just, just the thought of oh, it was bizarre.
0: I mean, anyway, I, I, but weird. I
1: met him and, you know, he has a 14-year-old son at the time, my 14-year-old son, and he was saying, but, you know, nobody was listening to us. I have nothing. I can't look after my son. And yet you were on TV every day. Why, would you, why were they listening to you and nobody listens to me? And anyway, for an hour-long conversation, we were filmed and talked and chatted. He's one of my biggest supporters now. Everyone online who, who trolls me, you can get back. Alan is there defending me. <laughs> so it, 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 it's, it's, not, it's not just about the buzz. It's actually about bringing people together. Yeah.
0: Trend Fair seems to me a very personal project. Okay. Is that compatible with democratic structures? What happens if, for any reason, it needs someone else to lead it? If, let's say, you do worse than you expected Mm -hmm. in the next election and in a normal party situation, you'd step down and someone else would take over. So what happens with that personal element that's there?
1: So I've stepped down from the modern-day slavery. When when my work was done, that was then taken over by the CSJ. When I've done other work in the city, that's been taken over by other campaign groups. And now we've got APPGs. I don't have to be there. I have to sort of do the hard opening the door. Mm. And on True and Fair, if It's somebody else. We have nine candidates, so I'm one of nine candidates, and we'll have another six probably in February that we announce. And if it turns out one of them wins the seat, then I actually think they should be the leader of the party. Right, right. So it shouldn't be about me. What I can do is use my platform to create awareness of the things we're talking about. The agenda is more important than the person.
0: Where are you standing, by the way?
1: So I'm standing in Epsom and Yule against Chris Grayling.
0: So just to wrap it up, let's just put a long-term hat on and say, where do you want to be in five years' time with regard to this project?
1: I would love for myself and one other, maybe two others, three others, however many of us, to win some seats and be able to be in Parliament and make sure that the agenda of constitutional change is the same that the Green Party managed to achieve with the agenda for Green, a policy, an environmental policy, which is now embedded in all the other political parties. Such a
0: good example, isn't it? Of, of Absolutely.
1: You know, we a- need a democratic reboot as being a fundamental part of all political parties.
0: Yeah. I was going to end on that, but it occurs to me, sorry, <laughs> you were saying about the law of unintended consequences. And, and of course, none of us have perfect vision going no. forward. There are too many variables. So just looking back at that battle over Brexit, mm-hmm. is there something you would do differently to achieve a second referendum? Was there some point where a compromise was within reach and...
1: So when I won the first Article 50 case, what we won is that and the MPs would go back to Parliament and actually it's legally required that they should have had it requested impact studies on the outcome of any Brexit deal. Mm. I should have brought that case.
0: Mm. Lovely. What a, what a perfect place uh, on which to end. Gina Miller, thank you so much for your time. It was an absolute pleasure to meet you.
1: Absolute pleasure for me too.
0: Remember, there's a new bunker every day, so don't forget to subscribe, review, and rate us. And if you want more analysis like this and interviews, you can support us on the funding platform Patreon. For as little as £3 a month, just search Bunker Podcast Patreon. You will get every podcast early and with no ads. I leave you by paraphrasing the author Sandra Seeley. Women have always had to be creative about making limited resources work to sustain themselves and their families. They understand what it means to just get on with it. That is why it is imperative for women not just to be the ones cleaning the table our world stands on, but crafting its legs. This is Alexandreu in the bunker saying over and out.
1: The Bunker Daily was written and presented with Alex Andreev. The producers were Alex Reese and Jet Gerbertson, with assistant production from Kasia Tomashevich. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, and the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey. The group editor was Andrew Harrison, and our marketing manager is Gina Richard. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.